Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jim Kircher. My next guest has for many years been focused on making progress in the field of multiple sclerosis research. She's just recently honored for her groundbreaking studies, receiving this year's John Distel Prize for Multiple Sclerosis Research from the National Multiple Sclerosis Society and the American Academy of Neurology. Her name is Dr. Ann Cross. She's the Manny and Rosalind Rosenthal and Dr. John L. Trotter MS Center Chair in Neuroimmunology at Washington University School of Medicine. It's probably the last time I'm going to give that whole title. Dr. Cross, thanks for joining us today, and congratulations on this award. This is People are saying this is groundbreaking, so I want to find out why it's groundbreaking in, in just a little bit. But a little bit of background, I think I may have said muscular as opposed to multiple, because people do probably get multiple sclerosis, muscular dystrophy, and some of the other things mixed up. So let's, let's specify multiple sclerosis. It does affect the brain and the spinal cord, right? What does it do, and why does it do it? Well, I wish we knew the full story here, Jim. Thank you for um, inviting me here to talk about this disease, which is extremely common. Um, so multiple sclerosis is considered a demyelinating disease. There's myelin is a type of substance in the central nervous system that um, surrounds the nerve fibers or axons. And um, we believe it's an autoimmune attack on the myelin. And in unfortunately, in some cases, the, the nerve fibers themselves and the nerve cell bodies die too. Um, so, this disease uh, has a prevalence in the U.S. of about 900,000. We don't know what triggers it. We know some things that epidemiologically are associated with risk of MS, such as uh, uh, having mononucleosis as a um, late teen or early adult, uh, smoking, being obese during adolescence, particularly for girls, um, and Having a family member with MS um, is certainly a risk factor as well. So there is it is it difficult to diagnose? Can you somebody walks in and you say, "Oh, you've got this," or is it well, tough to actually pin down? So in some cases, it's very easy to diagnose, and the person has read the textbook and they have all the right signs and symptoms and findings. But uh, in many cases, it can be um, a little bit difficult. Uh, because now we're seeing, and this is an interesting thing, this phenomenon that's happened while I've been practicing, uh, we're seeing people that are very young that get this disease, even as early as under age five, which is, which is uncommon, but, um, but still occurs, uh, and in older people as well. So when I was a resident many decades ago, uh, the saying was that people got it in their 20s and 30s, but now we realize that some people develop this disease, or at least it becomes manifest, uh, even in their 60s or 70s. So, Is there one kind of MS or multiple kinds? Well, there are multiple clinical subtypes. Uh, it's probably all the same disease, although there are some diseases that are mimics of MS that look like MS uh, clinically, and so probably in the past we've gotten mixed up and thought that there were separate diseases and there are separate diseases that can look like MS but we've now learned to separate them out more. Uh, within MS itself uh, there are people who have relapsing remitting MS, there are people who have secondary progressive MS which evolves from relapsing remitting MS and nowadays is uh, that's secondary progressive MS is not the best type of MS to have because it's harder to treat and um, nowadays, we're seeing less of that evolving because we have new medications. 
And then there's primary progressive MS, which is about 8 or 10% of the whole population. So this is one of those those frustrating uh, diseases. Do we call it a disease or a condition? I'm not sure. We call it a disease. A disease. Yeah. You, you, can't, you don't know how to prevent it. It can't be cured, but there is some treatment. Right. I have had the very fortunate um, ability to follow this disease. I, when I first started practicing, there were no treatments. And then after about a few years, we got our first treatment. Now we have 15 or so treatments that are primarily for relapsing remitting MS or relapsing secondary progressive MS. But we do have one treatment now that uh, seems to be effective in slowing but not stopping the primary progressive MS. Right. In case people do have questions about this, and I imagine a lot of people are touched by this, either directly or, or indirectly, uh, we'll take your questions or comments. You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at stlpublicradio.org. Well, let's talk a little bit about your research. Um, and you'll, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, I hope. <laughs> that the the emphasis has been in the past on T cells, which are cells which are supposed to help us, but sometimes they go out of control and they may attack the nerves in a way we don't want them to. Your research focused on B cells, which I guess trigger the T cells, and I don't want to get too deep into this, but help me out on what you kind of, with the direction you began to take the research on this. So um, B cells and T cells are both lymphocytes, which is a white blood cell type, and yes, that's true that for a number of years, T cells were sort of on the forefront in terms of MS research. And that was primarily, I think, because the animal model for MS, which is definitely not a perfect model, could be transferred from one animal to the other by T lymphocytes, but not by B lymphocytes. However, um, I had a, a very creative uh, fellow back in the 1990s, Jerry Lyons, who's now up at University of uh, Wisconsin, and um, she and I thought, as her fellowship project, we should, we should refocus on B cells. And part of that was because I had done some work with John Trotter, who was my first mentor in St. Louis. And he and I wrote a chapter about immunoglobulins in the spinal fluid of MS patients. And immunoglobulins ultimately come from B cells. So Jerry and I thought we would go back and see if we could transfer uh, disease uh, with B cells or see what B cells were doing to the, this animal model. So we got some mice that lacked B cells. They had been genetically engineered not to have B cells. And we got s regular mice that were their litter mates and we compared them for developing this model called EAE, Experimental Autoimmune Encephalomyelitis. And um, the ones that were B cell lacking uh, didn't get ill and they were, um, they had much less pathology in their spinal cords, which is, this is a primarily spinal cord disease in mice. And so, you know, we published that and then we did some more studies to try to figure out exactly why the B cells weren't working. And all this time, I was kind of watching the clinical world. Um, we had no B cell depleting drugs at that point. And, um, and I heard about rituximab, which, was, which is a monoclonal antibody that is B cell depleting. It lyses B lymphocytes, at least in the circulation. And so it got, this, this allows you to, to look at a new drug treatment then. Is that a that's new correct. direction? That's yeah. correct. So it got FDA approved for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a B cell type of cancer. And it wasn't, of course, approved for MS. So I wrote a grant to the National MS Society asking them to fund a, a small study 
adding rituximab on top of the drugs that we had then, which were only two categories really, and uh, in people who weren't weren't optimally responding to the drugs we had, and they eventually funded it. Genentech had to supply free medication, and it was a bit of a challenge to get them to give me free rituximab because it was very expensive, and they at first at least didn't see the point in MS. But we did the study. We got 88% reduction in new MRI uh, gadolinium-enhancing lesion activity, which was pretty astounding, and we were, you know, pretty happy about the results. Right. Again, and not not necessarily a cure, but slowing the process? Correct. Is that what yeah, it does? It's, right. We don't have a cure right now, right. unfortunately. Um, I always I always hesitate to ask this, or maybe maybe the scientists hesitate to answer. What, what kind of a, a time frame do you see in terms of uh, true breakthroughs that, that could make a difference, whether a prevention or cure? Well, um, you're going to hesitate I would, to answer, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> it is a difficult question, and, and I don't have a crystal ball, but I think we're moving steadily forward in our field. I mean, this year we got two more medications uh, that were FDA-approved for MS. Um, I think most people are beginning to focus on what causes nerve fiber dropout and what causes neuron cell body dropout in MS and trying to reverse that or prevent that. And, and also drugs that might remyelinate those nerve fibers that have been demyelinated in MS. Without knowing too much about this, it, it seems that there's always a protein involved somewhere. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> what protein are you? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm just well, <laughs> there are many proteins in myelin, and, yeah. and animal models and, and also studies in humans have, have focused on a lot of those proteins, but we don't have a specific one of those that is related to MS. So tell me about your, your background. Um, you went into medicine. Did you want to be a, a, a doctor? What were you thinking? And then lead us into to the research and, and why you got into this area. Okay. Well, I am the first person in my family to go to medical school, uh, but my parents were both college educated. You're and from Missouri, Kurt. No, I'm from Alabama. You're from I'm from Alabama. Mobile, Alabama. And um, I have one brother who has some neurological challenges. And I think um, because of that experience, from birth, you know, that I uh, was heading toward medicine and research in particular. And um, so I ended up going to medical school thinking that I would work on the disease that my brother has, but in fact, I don't. Um, but um, but I think that's what drove me as a family, a close family member with a neurologic disease. So you were, you were hooked on research from the beginning? I think so, because I went to medical school thinking that I would work on my brother's disease. But. When, when you got started, uh, where were we on MS as opposed to where we are today? <laughs> we were in terrible trouble. I mean, that's one reason why I chose to work on multiple sclerosis, because I don't have anyone in my family who has it. But um, I used to, when I was a resident, um, diagnose the disease quite a bit. It was often in young women who were my age at the time, in their 20s. And I would, you know, think this is horrible. You know, I'm making this diagnosis. We can't do anything to help these people other than throw corticosteroids at them, which don't have any long-term benefit. And um, and so, and it was, and it's common. It's a common disease. And so, um, I thought, well, I don't want to work on an obscure disease. I want to work on a common disease that needs help. And so that's why I chose multiple sclerosis. 
We're talking with Dr. Ann Cross. She's the uh, professor of neuroimmunology at WashU and uh, just received a prestigious award for her research. Um, the the finding out. Let me, I'll, let me let me backtrack a little bit. When I've talked to Alzheimer's researchers, they said, "Well, we could never tell for sure that." It was Alzheimer's until we the, per, the patient died and we, we autopsied the brain. Is that the case with MS as well, or can are you improving the detection of it uh, in, in new ways? Well, the advent of the magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, really revolutionized MS because that particular imaging uh, way method is able to um, show the MS lesions without hurting the patient. Uh, it's non-invasive and and you can identify them as MS lesions as opposed to something most else. of the time we can if you are if you've done it, if you're experienced. I mean, some of them, some lesions or white matter abnormalities are not MS but can be confused with MS. But there are certain patterns, certain shapes of the lesions where they are located that can really help and it's really helped our field develop medications because you can use this as an outcome measure in clinical trials rather than clinical symptoms and signs and and that makes it a, a lot more of a scientific study and more objective and um, so having MRI is really probably the one thing that has moved our field forward most, I think. Yeah, you've been credited with making breakthroughs uh, in MS research, but this this has been a, a, a career for you. There have to have been times when you thought you were onto something and you just weren't. I mean, how discouraging is it? I mean, it's great to, 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 to get that breakthrough, but boy, that's just got to be frustrating, and you've got to be a very patient uh, researcher. I have this saying, um, that it's not research, it's re-re-research. And it's mm -hmm. one step forward, one step backwards, two steps forward, one step backwards. It's, it's a slow process. I think early on I would get frustrated and discouraged, uh, especially because I would use funding and not get anywhere with it in some cases. But overall, um, I've seen, I've been able to observe the field move forward so well and, and give these many people who have this disease uh, hope and treatments that can slow and in some cases it really seems to stop the disease some of these treatments so um, yeah it can get a little frustrating and and um, but you know I'm kind of an optimistic person and I just think that there's something good around the corner is the incidence of, of MS increasing holding steady declining I mean there are numerous factors going on here. so it's the incidence in underdeveloped countries is increasing we're pretty sure the do we know why uh, we have theories they include uh, less vitamin D maybe the people are staying inside more a difference in diet becoming more westernized in their diet which is an interest of mine also um, uh, maybe obesity is playing a role in there. Uh, smoking may, uh, but those are just hypotheses. If if there, there there's there's a couple of questions that you, first of all, what am I looking for if I think I'm having a problem, and what might I do to prevent? And I know we don't have a prevention, but is there good advice? Well, the best advice I could give a patient, a person, would be to uh, have their doctor check their vitamin D, and if it's low, make sure your vitamin D is in a good range. But that's associated with MS development. It's not, not a necessarily cause, right? a cause. And, um, and to stay fit and not to be obese, not to smoke, and to have good genetics. 
What would be the first uh, symptoms that, that might um, uh, tip me off that, that something is happening? Well, those are extremely variable, which is one of the, the issues with diagnosing MS. You can have a lot of different symptoms, but many times it's a syndrome that we call it a clinically isolated demyelinating syndrome or clinically isolated syndrome that might involve optic neuritis, for example, which will lead to pain behind the eye, decreased vision, sometimes frank blindness, or it might just be color vision loss, and uh, pain on moving the eye side to side. And that is often a demyelinating syndrome that is the first attack of MS. And it's very, you know, it brings the patient, the person to the doctor because they want medical attention in that case. They've got, they know something's wrong. And it makes a difference to know. I mean, so you know, as a doctor, you know people don't want to know sometimes, but how important is it to oh, know? It is extremely important to know because we have 15 plus medications now for MS and we have one for uh, progressive MS. I mean, we have medications that can slow or, or in some cases virtually stop the disease. So you want to know if you have it because you want to be treated correctly. You also don't want to be treated for a wrong thing, too. And so um, I would advise that person to see a general neurologist first or maybe even their general doctor first. And and then the general neurologist, they're all trained well enough to recognize MS. And many of them, because we have 15 drugs, will send them to us. Great. All good advice. So uh, thanks so much for your work. And uh, I want to thank Dr. Ann Cross for being with us today. She's the Manny and Rosalind Rosenthal and Dr. John L. Trotter, MS Center Chair at Neuroimmunology at Washington University School of Medicine. Dr. Cross, great to talk to you. Thank Thank you, you, Jim. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.